Somewhere toward the end of the sharing, Lord willing, on the only Italian prophet, Malachi. Yeah. Malachi yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Mr. Cole's going to pray. Hello, Dominic. Hello, there. Woo, my granddaughter's here on time. Praise she God. She's been here for a half hour. My granddaughter's here, right? <laughs> a miracle. Uh, all right, Andy. Father God, we thank you for your love and we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you wanted a family and you went to all the trouble of, of writing the Bible through the Holy Spirit through, through the, for the, the 4,000 years or whatever it was with your, with your men of God that received from the Holy Spirit. You went to all these problems and all, these tr all this trouble and you, you, put up, you put up with your, your chosen people, Israel, uh, and and you know you did all of this just because you wanted children and Lord you've called us and we've accepted you as Lord and Savior and Father God we are your sons and daughters and we thank you so much because you love us so much and you you just stand with us every day and you watch us and you you, you don't come down hard on us but but you know Lord you, you just you just want us to to prosper and do well and and be healthy and we thank you for that in Christ's name, Amen. 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 Thank you, Lord. All right. Ta <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about Enoch's faith, and we're going to get into probably what I consider to be one of the wildest sections of the Bible. Okay? I want to be like Enoch. Yeah. I want to get so. translated. You ready? <laughs> Amen. Let's go. Hebrews 11.5 By faith Enoch was taken up so they should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, when he was, he, he was commended as having pleased God. Before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So, here's Genesis 5, 21-24. This is the record of Enoch and the generations of Adam. When Enoch lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 35, I mean 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Where's the please God part? Uh, where, are you asking for it? Yeah. The only way you can please God without faith is impossible to please God. Right. But Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said that before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Right. But the only testimony of Enoch in the, in the Torah is what I just read you. Where's so, the please God part? You walk with God. Do you please God by walking with him? Is there any testimony in those verses from God that he pleased God? 
I, I don't, I don't know. Is is there some in maybe, the New Testament? Maybe it's just the fact that he was taken up that it's, in, it's indicative in, of inferred that he pleased. Right. So, I'm I'm bringing this up because we are primarily what would be classified as evangelicals of of the. Um, full gospel branch. <laughs> That's why we take copy breaks while we're teaching. Um, we would not be classified as fundamentalists. So a fundamentalist is more um, to the line of, well, an exaggerated way of typifying a fundamentalist would be something like the King James was good enough for the Apostle Paul. It's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, the Bible in the King James Version is of such great worth that the Holy Spirit left the planet. You know, I mean, we don't have miracles anymore. Oh, we don't really? have tongues anymore. Really? Is that what they believe? Um, I'm like, this is hyperbole, Eddie. Okay. Yeah, I don't want to paint with a very broad brush on someone with a narrow foundation, but yes, um, that's, that's uh, you know, so we're not fun, but be that as it may, if you've been raised evangelical um, and you're a serious student of the Bible, sooner or later you're going to hear someone quoting scripture and you're going to go to your center reference and your concordance and not be able to find that scripture. For it is said, or as it was written, and you go for the as it is written, and you can't find it. And there's a reason why you can't find it, because it's not inside your evangelical Protestant canon of the Scripture. Because the Scripture can be a little bit wider than what we're generally exposed to. So, as a pastor and as a minister, I have generally hewed the line at like a 99 percentile that what I teach and how I encourage and what I direct, it, I, I try not to be controversial at all and stay within the bounds of accepted Protestant evangelical canon. I figure if it's not in the canon, I don't need to address it. But then, see the problem is, you'll find quotes that canonized writers refer to that aren't in that canon. And if you're going to be a serious, serious student of the Bible, you're going to have to be open enough to what God may instruct you in other books. So are you going to show us the book of Enoch? Not yet. <laughs> so, Mark 12, 10, this is the latter part of the verse, Jesus said, this, you know, he said, have you not read? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That one you can find in the Old Testament. But I'm using this as an illustration as to how Scripture comes to be. That stone, that cornerstone in the temple that was tripped over and not used until it was placed, what made it special or any different than any big block of limestone they dug out of the quarry? It became the cornerstone of the temple. It became the cornerstone of the temple. When it got... Not when it got pulled out of the quarry, not when it got dressed, not when it got dragged, not when it got placed in the lay-down yard. 
it became sanctified, holy, set aside. This is a problem we just envision holy as some mystic, supernatural state or moral quality. Um, holy involves a whole lot of factors. It involves that, but it also involves the sheer nature of something being particularly planned for a purpose. So when that common, ordinary rock was taken from the laydown yard and placed in the sanctuary, it became the cornerstone, part of God's habitation, quote-unquote, on earth. That's what's sanctified. But they're talking about the Lord Jesus. Yes, they are. But I'm talking about the written word and um, the canon of Scripture to a degree, because that's a vast subject, right? So let's talk about biblical literature for a bit. All right? We have what we call the Old Testament, what the Jews refer to as the Tanakh, which is an acronym for the Torah, which is the law, the Nevi'im, which are the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. You'll see Jesus, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, this is how Jesus taught, he would say, have you not read, have you not heard? Um, and, and he would take them from the law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay? So that it, that's getting the full counsel of God. You get the law, which is what you should do, what we would call doctrine. You get the writings, or the prophets, which we would call reproof. And then you get um, the correction, <laughs> which is the writings, the life application. How is this played out? Okay? Alashayet, <clears throat> it's just the Bible lesson. That's just the Old Testament, the Tanakh. Um, so you have the... Hebrew Old Testament. Then you have the Septuagint, which, if you'll see in notes sometimes, it's given the Roman numeral 70 because uh, the legend has it, and it's on good authority, that it was 70 scholars who translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. The Hellenistic Jews, the Jews who did not speak Hebrew, read their Bible in Greek. And when you're studying the New Testament... Generally speaking, actually not generally speaking, unless you're reading something like the complete Jewish Bible, it's, it's couched, it's quotations of the Old Testament aren't taken from the Tanakh, they're taken from the Septuagint. So that's why the wording's different. You ever had that where, you know, Jesus will quote something and then he'll give you a center reference and then you'll go to the center reference, you read that verse in the Old Testament, it's like, that doesn't sound like that. It's because our Old Testament is translated from the Hebrew and the... Greek versions of the New Testament, it's, it's ideologically narrow to think that these things were just written in Greek. When Jesus had his accusation hung over his head, what was it written in? Greek, Greek and Hebrew, right? In Hebrew, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I mean, so it had, all, it had all these languages, right? You know, um, anyhow. So the Septuagint, that's the, that's the Greek Old Testament. But then you have the intertestamental writings, which we call the Apocrypha. Now, the Catholic Church, and by extension from the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, and I didn't check on this, but I would suppose that possibly some of the Episcopal and Lutheran churches maintain the Apocryphal or Deuteronomical works in their canon of Scripture. We call them intertestamental because they come after Malachi, which is the end of our canon. And the Tanakh, the end of the canon, is Second Chronicles, by the way, just so you know. So when Jesus says from 
Abel to Zechariah. He's saying from Genesis to Revelation, essentially, or from A to Z, because of how the order of their books... I'm going too far. Anyhow, the, the order of the books are important. So that's the Apocrypha, and, and that's Eddie's phone. That's so cute. <laughs> uh, I can't talk. I'm at church right now. <laughs> Okay, all okay. right, I'll okay. call you later. Yeah, bye. Is <laughs> that a lady friend? Uh, uh, my, sis my sister lady friend. Your sister lady friend, okay, just checking. <laughs> <laughs> keep my eye on you, widow. Yeah, okay. <laughs> any lady friends might, any, might, they're not interested in me, they're, they would be interested in what's in my pocket. Uh -huh. My bank pocket. <laughs> so, of these, there's 14 books in the in the accepted apocrypha Deuteronomical books. Uh, the ones you would probably be most familiar with are First and Second Maccabees. So, uh, have you had any instruction on Antiochus Epiphanes and his desecration of the temple? Right of his forced Hellenization of Judea. How about the Maccabean rebellion? Right and Judah the Hammer. You've heard about that. Yes. Well, we get that history from First and Second Maccabees. How about the story of, of the mother who had seven sons, and Antiochus Epiphanes took her son and put him in the fire, said, renounce your God, or I'll kill your son. And they threw him in the fire. And she continued through all seven sons to say, do not deny the Lord. Do not deny the Lord. Do not deny the Lord. This is the literature from which when Paul says, if we deny him, he will deny us, is springing from. Oh, wow. Books of the Bible that you haven't read usually, okay. right? It's a very faith-giving, very traumatic and dramatic. Uh, it's, it's just one of these gut-wrenching, courageous, die-well stories. You know, it's a, it's a mama for her boys, it's a family for, for the Lord, and it's sons dying like men and not bowing down to the idol. So how come it's not in... That's a longer uh, lesson than I could even give tonight, or even qualify to. <laughs> but it's like a shorter... But there were like a lot of church councils uh -huh. um, that said what was in and what was out, and then after the Reformation, there was still a lot of infighting as to what was in or out. For instance, Luther has been quoted as saying that he considered James, the book of James, to be the straw gospel, or the straw epistle, that because it says faith without works is dead, that it's not really canon. You know, um, so let's just say that what is presented from the printing press uh, has had political influence on it, and so this is not an invitation to go hog wild on, like, say, the Gospel of Judas or or some of these wild and fanciful uh, what is technically called pseudopedagraphia, uh, written under a false name. That's a fancy word for that. Uh, that you know, all kinds of. You know, Jesus went off with Mary, had babies, and, and developed the British throne. You know, I mean, he's, this is where all this stuff comes from, right? The Knights Templar. Uh -huh. yeah. Knights Templar. And, and, you know, we kind of giggle, but people killed each other for this kind of stuff. For people, people at the stake over this kind of stuff. Okay? It's a lot of history. It's a lot, a lot of history. Um, God's Secretaries is a book that I would, I've got it on the shelf, but God's Secretaries is the biography, or highlights several of the translators of the King James. And that's a good introduction to this process and procedure. It's, it's, a, it's a very good piece of history. So that's, that's the Maccabees, Sirach. So the, when you read the Old Testament, you'll hear, you'll read about books referenced that are not in your Bible. 
as it is written in the book of Jasser, or as it is written in the Acts of uh, in the book of the Acts of Solomon, as it's written in the Wars of the Lord. There's another book that's called the Book of Jubilees, otherwise known as Little Genesis. Well, I, I've often wanted to get some of these books just to read them. Uh-huh. And, and I haven't been able to find them. Maybe I didn't look hard enough. Oh, they're there. Oh, yeah, you can find them. And, and, and more readily now than you could maybe 20 years ago. Uh, Abel talked about the Book of Enoch. Uh, for me to actually get a Book of Enoch, I had to go to a Catholic bookstore and order it special, and they got me a copy. Okay? So, I mean, today you can go online, read the PDF, no problem. Very accessible. Okay? Then, speaking of Enoch, there are but what... It, what? I got it. Yes, sir. So, if, if we got some of these books and read them, my only concern is uh, uh, getting... I mean, they're not, can they're not canonized. Am I using that right, Correct. That right word? Correct. Yeah. They're not. But my only concern is getting this stuff in my mind and then getting it mixed up with books that are canonized and... And, and, yes. And and, and then and, and having in mind that, that that is scripture, and it probably is, but you know it, we are not sure. So uh, so how I have personally dealt with that dilemma with regard to these uh, books referred to or books quoted that are not in our canon, and examining them is I rely heavily the ninety nine percentile on received canonized text. And what agrees with that received canonized text, I agree with. And what, what contradicts it, I throw it out. Okay. And of course, you're, you're a lot more well-versed in the Word than I am, so maybe, maybe I don't know. <laughs> so the second, the second flag on this, uh, and, and they go hand in hand, so it's not like one's priority and two's secondary, they're like, is the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy of Spirit of God. So, one quick example. When I was studying the tabernacle, Moses' tabernacle, and the motions of um, the motions of the divisions, and the four divisions of the army, which are the four flags of the army. So, the head of a man, which was Reuben, the lion, which is Judah, the ox, which is Ephraim, and then you had the tribe of Dan. And as I was studying this, I learned that these banners, these flags, these emblems, came from the prophecies of their father Jacob uh, and, and were reinforced by the prophecies of Moses on the tribes. Dan is like an adder by the roadside. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, something's askew. Here's the thing about Scripture is God can highlight things by showing you things that are askew. Because I'm also aware of the fact that Jacob saw uh, an army of angels camping beside him. And he named the place Mahanaim, two camps. There was a, a camp, an army of angels that mirrored Jacob's army, his family, as he traveled through the wilderness. And in the armies of the Lord, the host of the Lord, there are four chariot banner holders. The cherubim, who have the face of a man the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and, not a snake, an eagle. And I said, okay, so this is an incongruity. I have the angelic army and host that the earthly army of the Lord is mirroring in its symbology, and yet I have something out of whack. I've got the army of Dan, which is a snake, 
It's just a snake, and up here I've got an eagle. What gives? Uh -huh. And I was, you know, and I was studying the Holy Spirit, and I was studying eagles, and I found out eagles eat snakes. And I kind of had this holy hunch that maybe it's because eagles eat snakes. I don't know. And so as I was studying, so that's the Holy Spirit, right? Well, I, I didn't stand up and say, I've got a new revelation. Eagles eat snakes, and that's why the eagle's there. So I was uh, studying the Targum of Jonathan, which is another... Um, it's like a well-known work, but it's commentary on the Old Testament. And I think it's in the Targum of Jonathan, where it says that the prince of the tribe of Dan was like, no way am I putting a snake on my banner. It was anathema to him, although he didn't say anathema because he didn't know Greek and the Greek Empire wasn't there. And so he said, no, I'll put an eagle on my standard because, wait for it, Eagles eat snakes. And so history um, kind of helps to solidify holy hunches as you're studying. So that's the Scripture testifying, that's the Holy Spirit testifying, and that's history testifying. And now I have no problem teaching about the eagle banner and the tribe of Dan and the cherub with the eagle face. Why would Dan... I mean, maybe good. I'm sorry to interrupt. Getting off track because Dan knew that the serpent was the devil. Dan's prophecy was is right. that he would be vicious and, and, and poisonous. And Dan is excluded from the tribes of Israel in the new heavens and the new earth because through Dan, massive idolatry came into the nation of Israel. That's a short answer. Okay, now you just answered the question. Oh, well, I was getting there, Eddie. Just wow. gotta give me a minute. No, 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 I'm sorry. No, but I mean, no, right. I, I see. Yeah. But I can understand, you know, I mean, if I were Dan, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be considered a, a, an adder by the road that's going right. to bite somebody that walks by. Yeah, you yeah. Know. snake. Right. Who wants to be known as a snake? Right. Yeah. That was the prophecy on it. Okay. All right. So we're talking about biblical literature. So you're going to learn about God. First and foremost, you got to read your Bible. But you may need to read more. You may need to read an anatomy book. You may need to read a, a, a cosmology book, not cosmetology, that's about makeup. And, and, and you know, you, you might have to read some science, some history, some because if you are walking with God, you will see Him everywhere. Amen? So then there's popular apocalyptic literature, end times literature. We have our own uh, end times literature, you know, I mean, Hal Lindsey... Uh, kind of launched the, the, the 19th, end of 19th, early 20th century millennial frenzy with his works, right? And uh, the late great planet Earth or something. I, I, I was there, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's. Hey, so many younger people weren't. That's, yeah. that's a popular book. Books that are published influence thought. And from published thought influencing books, beliefs come. You know? Um, Oh, I could go on a tangent. I'm not going to go on a tangent. <laughs> Hold back, Nick. Hold back. But, but all of it should should uh, provoke you to thought. To thought. Yes. It should, amen. should provoke you to thought, meditation, and union with God. Seeking His will. And He'll reveal Himself. Exactly. You know? I know, because God's bigger than all this. God's bigger than the canon. He's, he's bigger than the King James. And God is so big that a Muslim could read 
the, the jitterings and judderings of, of a demonized epileptic and find Jesus because Muhammad <laughs> left a testimony of Jesus in the Quran. So don't tell me what God can't do through literature, right? And so are you going to disavow someone's born-again experience because, well, because I read that in the Quran. You met Jesus. He'll get you there. You know, it's not the seminar. It's Thank the Savior, right? Amen. All right. So, so the book of Enoch, understand that in Jesus' day, the book of Enoch, which is, in particular, if I remember correctly, if I'm wrong, you know, Lord forgive me, but Enoch 1, the first book of Enoch, okay, um, had tremendous influence in the first century. And during the first century, there was a, you know, it was, it, there were, uh, you know, several centuries into the Maccabean re revolt, and, and, you know, I mean, Rome had come in, the Parthians were out, Rome was in, turbulent times, there was this reawakening in Israel, a lot of messianic zeal, and Enoch was popular literature. It influenced thought. Okay? There was a lot of messianic literature. Before Christ or after? In that, in that time period, expectation. There was messianic expectation. Okay. Right. Okay? So, so Enoch, Enoch was something that a, um, a, a pious Jew would be familiar with. It's literature that a pious Jew would be familiar with. Mm -hmm. That they would read, that they would talk. Just like we would talk about maybe a well-known Christian teacher or author writing a book um, even if it wasn't true, you know, uh, left behind. Yeah. It got a lot of people talking, got a lot of people thinking. It's not the Bible, it's not canon, it's not, but it got people talking about the Bible. Right? Right. Okay. So then we move into the New Testament canon. But even in the New Testament, you have, like, quotations from pagan writers. Titus 1.12, Paul says, even one of their own prophets says, the Cretans are all liars. Right. That's Epimenides. And that leads into this logician's problem. Epimenides says the Cretans are all liars. But then that means that Epimenides lied. Which means that the Cretans tell the truth. Which means that the Cretans are all liars. <laughs> this is how philosophers have fun. Okay, well, that doesn't sound right to me. But you know people like that. Aratus, he quotes the poet Aratus in, um, in Acts 17, 28, and um, him we move and live and have our, have our being. And, you know, so in this major address, if, if you've ever been to a what, what we at times uh, negatively categorize as a seeker-sensitive church, and you felt the need to be critical toward a pastor who in his teaching didn't just use the Bible, but used some sort of a film example or a popular literature example in his sermon and thought, he's not even using the Bible. Paul did that. He sat on Mars Hill, his life on the line, proclaimed the gospel, and he quotes, he quotes Epimenides, he quotes Aratus, he quotes a, a pagan um, idol inscription in the middle of his, he's picking up stones from the quarry. And he's dressing these stones and he's setting it as a set aside now holy thing because he's used it under the power of the Holy Spirit and turning common ordinary words of people who saw truth 
and turned it into Scripture, the Word of God. That's how we got it. Okay. That's how we got it. Okay? Awesome. Does that bless you? Does that help you? Yeah. Uh, Menander. I love this. I just learned this one today. Menander. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.33 Bad communications spoil good manners. Sounds serious, right? Something you'd find in the, you know, in Proverbs. Right? I, as a matter of fact, probably until yesterday, I kind of subconsciously it believed be it was Proverbs. a Proverbs. Yeah. yeah, that's what I believed. You know, he's just sitting there, he's writing to the Corinthians, and he's, he's quoting Proverbs. I never checked it, because that's what I assumed, you know? It's in the back of my head. No, it's from a Greek comedian. He's quoting a playwright... Menandes, who wrote comedies. I love it. I'm telling you, sky's the limit. Okay? Look at God go. What does this tell you? It tells you that Paul probably read Epimenides. It tells you that Paul was familiar with the works of Aratus. It tells you that Paul, though highly schooled in the Torah and the school of Gamaliel, and believing in the influence of the Holy Spirit, because he's a Pharisee, also read or watched comedies. But wasn't Wait. Paul also denounced because of these things? Possibly so. Well, how, 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 how was Paul going, if he didn't have all, all this other secular information and, and stuff, how was, he gonna, how was he gonna be able to reach people without that? He, we, the Christian church, tried an experiment uh, at a critical time in history where we decided that we'd leave the world alone and be more sanctified by going behind the wall and creating a convent, a hermitage, an abbey, and hide from the world and be holy. And God didn't call us to hide from the world. He said, you are in the world, you're just not of it. And yes, you have to be aware. You have to be aware of what's going on. You have to be. I'm not, and this is not a pitch that you should now go watch all the comedies so you can find God. I'm, I'm saying that if you're walking with God, um, we need to have, he, have this information in order to bring people to God because they aren't on. The, they're not reading the Bible, right? Right. <laughs> they're, they're into this other stuff. So it's Josiah or Hezekiah, one or the other. Josiah or Hezekiah, they take. Moses' staff and serpent, which God revealed, God told them to build, that they used in the wilderness, which was a symbol of the crucified Christ, and he destroyed it because the people had built an altar to it and it turned it into an idol. They gave it a name, and he destroyed it because they weren't using it for its purposes. And then Jesus comes along centuries later, and he goes back to that original art form. It's a piece of art. Don't you know? It's a symbol. It's a piece of art. <laughs> you know. And he redeems it, and he says, "Even as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man." So it is. It's a redemptive process. So, it's so seeing God's beauty in it. Fair to say, if a thing can be brought into subjection to yeah. Christ, then it has a redemptive aspect. Aspects. So those those aspects of, of art or fiction or music that draw on the noble character of man, they resonate and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I study creativity, okay? And, and without acknowledging God, most of the gurus, right, acknowledge this fact that these, these um, primary story arcs of the hero resonate with all. Why? Because we have one. His name is Jesus. It's God. So these noble characters are someone who would lay down their life for somebody else. 
someone who is, uh, you know, who is sacrificially kind, who is courageous, or all these things get us. And things that are um, intentionally perverse only titillate those who are getting bent. You know, that part of you that's bent. Right? That's interesting. I, I got to respond. No, 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 no. we're having church. The stories of life. I heard, you know, Ron Howard, director, actor. Uh -huh. I heard him comment one time, and he said, look, there's basically seven stories. Yeah. In, in, in everything you see, there's seven. And he says it could be said that there are only three. So my point is that all of these things, the, the, the basic stories, like part of creation, I mean, really, and every perverse story is simply a perversion of that. Right. So I think in every story, there's probably a redemptive aspect. To yeah. it. You can't, if the story was if the story's God, good, you can't pull it, you can't, you can pervert it, but you can't pollute the concept of the story. Right. It right. proves truth, you know, because yeah. all lies, what is lie if you, if you compare it to true north, you know, it's, it's a twisted truth. So uh -huh. by definition, a, of a lie proves there's truth, because without truth, yeah. there's no lie. What are you turning away from, right? <laughs> okay, so, anyhow, all that, just, just so you get a, a better feel for, for how Scripture's coming. So where is this please God testimony? This please God testimony is in Sirach 44.16, also known as Ecclesiasticus, also not in your Bible, because you're evangelical Protestants, and you don't have that in your Bible. Unless you have an actual, you know, apocryphal Bible on your shelf of your collection of Bibles. And that verse says, Enoch pleased the Lord and was translated, being an example of repentance to all generations. Okay? So what was the repentance? Yeah. What was the... What is that? Nobody knows. What was the repentance? What was the repentance? So let's look at that. Genesis 5, 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years... When Lena had lived 65 years, how old was he? 65. 65. He fathered Methuselah. Imagine having your first child when you're 65. Enoch walked with God. <laughs> Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. I will testify that however committed you are to God, a child will drive you closer. <laughs> a child will drive you closer. <laughs> Nothing will make you pray. Nothing will make you know your failed humanity, your brokenness, your complete ineptness, uh, the wonder of God like a child. As Heidi says, God gave us children so we grow up. <laughs> well, there you go, Adam. There's, an, uh, there's a reason to have a child. Yeah. I don't mind raising children. Thus, <laughs> thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Okay? So, the, the implication here is, is that narratively, what is being emphasized is that Enoch walked with God after Methuselah was born. Yes. So, the implication of that is, for the first 65 years of his life, he was not. The first 65 years of his life, he was not walking with God. He had Methuselah, and he walked with God for 300 years. I want to put this in perspective for you, because to try to imagine someone who lived 365 years or 900 years is difficult for us. How do you, how do you, you know, put that in there? Um, not for me. Not for you. Not for you. So, 
let's talk about repentance and conversion. First of all, 365 is a young man in Enoch's time. Yes. And, and um, God says that, that there are times where He pulls the righteous. He takes the righteous away when they're young to, so that they um, don't have to see hard times. So usually when a young person dies, we see that as a tragedy or maybe even a curse for bad life. And, um, and don't appreciate the truth that there are times when God will allow a young person to die because He just loves them too much to let them live through the crap that's coming. Pardon the French. Okay? Anyhow, I got verses for that, but I didn't write them down. You can find them. Here's relative age of repentance. First of all, age of accountability. My dad decided the age of accountability was seven. So for the Laram household, seven was an age of accountability. That's just the way it was. Yeah, no reason for it except that seven was a good number. Um, and, you know, so at seven, uh, you know, you better be born again. Uh, we all were before then, but, uh, you know, then it was this thing. You would, have, you would have understanding enough to, to yeah. understand you know, so I mean, that's my father, okay, yeah. my father, and and that was that. So I was probably not, not probably, I know, I was baptized probably at five, and I, I had my first bona fide dream from the Lord when I was maybe seven, and that's when mom decided I was taking communion. This boy's having communion. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. But Numbers 32.11, God tells Moses that all the generation that came out of Egypt from 20 years and older are going to die in the wilderness. All those teenagers, I'm not holding responsible for their unbelief. And... Yeah, but did I... <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't sit here and try to parse the language if... if, if uh, 20 and above meant, you know, 21 and older. Yeah. But basically, uh, the, the understanding, the biblical understanding of the founders, this is proven out physiologically. It's something that we've just figured out, in, you know, in the late 20th century, uh, early 21st century with regard to neuroplasticity and how thought patterns work and the whole bit. Long story short, there are certain things that our legal system says you are not allowed to do until you're 21 years old because you're just not an adult yet. And then we ran short of people who were willing to go charge a cannon. So we said, okay, you can join the military at 18. Uh, we'll let you vote when you're 18 because if we're going to kill you, you might as well be able to vote. And we kind of changed things. But 21 was why. And this is why. It's come straight out of the Bible. Okay? There's well, don't say that out loud because the limbs will go change you know, that for sure. Yeah, you yeah. You know, it'll be 16 years old. And oh, there, there, you know, there's some sectors trying to push it to 8, but I'm not going there. Okay. <laughs> All right. So... The average lifespan in Enoch's time, all the patriarchs that Enoch lived around, you take all their ages. I pulled Enoch out because he's the outlier. He right. disappeared young. and He didn't die, though. Correct. Um, 907.5 years. That's the average lifespan in Enoch's day. God told Adam, the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. A day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. Noah, I mean, Adam didn't live out the day. He died at 930. Okay? Another side thought here. The storage capacity of your organic brain, your organic brain's memory, life memory storage capacity is a thousand years. How did they come up with this? Oh, I'd have to go back to the math. But, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Since, uh, yeah. 
I, I just remember being they, shocked. They came up with it, whether it's true or not. I, I remember being shocked when I read it because I wasn't reading it from any Bible writer. I was reading it from neuro, neuroscientists and, and yeah. physicists, and, yeah. I, and I was like, well, that makes sense. <laughs> 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 Haven't you ever wondered why people say you only use 10% of your brain? That never makes sense to me. So I, I could, what the heck's the rest of it? Up yeah, up? yeah. You always use 100% of your brain, and if you're not, you've got a problem. Um, it's just your only. It's a misapplication of the fact that your conscious brain is the smallest portion of your entire operating process. But we're getting off track. 907 years, it was my fault, I mentioned the thousand year um, you know, memory bank. We got an extra reservoir of the Holy Spirit, but yeah, okay. All right, so the average lifespan of the American male is currently 78.5. Congratulations, Mr. Cole. Thank you. Thank you. Please stay around. Um, so, okay. If you take Enoch's average lifespan and put it in modern lifespan, so let me explain the methodology to him. Just check me on this, right? So Enoch, okay, um, his lifespan and put it in modern lifespan. So you know, you talk about 65. So 65 divided by 907.5 gives me a percentile, which I multiply by 7.85. You follow the math? No. That's how I get five and a half years. So he repented at the 65th birthday amongst people who lived on average 907 years. Okay? okay. So if I took that percentage, that 65 divided by 907.5, and then the resulting percentage, that's the percentage of life you lived in your average lifetime, I multiply that against our average lifetime. For us, that would be like somebody repenting at 5.62 years of age. Okay. Just trying to, you know, put a handle on it for you. Not repenting, but maybe getting saved, yeah. is that what you're saying? Same thing. You know, you, you go to Romanian, you meet evangelicals, getting saved is called, when, when did you become a repenter? You know? Like we say, when did you get saved, or when did you get in the Word? You know, they say, but the, when did you become a repentant? We're not talking about repentance. We're talking about age of accountability, right? Well, I started with the age of accountability as a real, as a relative tool. Twenty years of age, except that in our terms of lifespan, Enoch was like a snot-nosed five five point six two year old, five five point six two years old person, almost six. Okay. Okay. I'm just trying to help. I, you know, I'm just trying to help. All right. Does that make sense? Now, in view of his own lifetime, his own pilgrimage on earth, 364 years, 365 years, at 65, um, that percentage, which is like 17% or something, to us, for a 78-year-old, that would have been if he came to the Lord at 14. All right? Like a 14-year-old. So in view of how long people lived, you know, if you live for like 800, 900 years, someone who's 65 is a very, it's like a kid. Okay, and yeah, get, a lot of them get, didn't get married until. I mean, he's not having kids until he's, you know, it's yeah. like, when are you gonna get married? Well, Dad, I'm only fifty, you know. Uh, okay, I mean, maybe they're waiting for the right sister. They had, you know, they had limited options, right? Limited. <laughs> limited options. Marry your sisters, right? Wasn't else. Hey, I'm just preaching the Bible, Abel. Okay, all right, all right. But see, here, here's the big, thing. Good thing we're not in big bucks. Yeah, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. Even in an era where people lived 907.5 years, a baby was born in, in 40 weeks. 
Even in a time period where people live 907 years, puberty still hit somewhere around 13 and 14 years of age. I don't think the aging process, the metabolic uh, exhaustion, age is caused by a decay in your mitochondria, basically. All the issues we have in life are the decay of, of our physical energy. But are, are you suggesting at 65 he lacked the maturity of a 65-year-old? No, I'm suggesting quite the opposite. I think that's that at, the only 65, yeah. at 65, he was 65. Yeah. So here are all the relative tools. If you want it relative to how he would have been viewed in terms of age level or wisdom level, obviously someone who's 300 years old as a young man. has, yeah, he would have been seen as a young man. I mean, a three, say, say well, that, and, but he and wouldn't be acting like a fire. Lot of, no. Much wisdom as somebody 300 years old. Exactly. Let's right. just, if they were craftsmen and he'd been at his craft um, for 60 of those 65 years, he would be a pretty good craftsman. But he, you know, he wouldn't be like the guy who'd been carving that plow for 450 years. Right. Right? Right. Okay, does it make sense? Yeah, so, absolutely. So, listen, I just all this for a short punchline, right? Uh, 20 years old, uh, 5 years old, 65 years old. Here's the truth. It's never too early to repent. It is never too early to repent. Ever. It can be too late. It can be too late. But it is never too early to repent. If a two-year-old or a three-year-old tells you they believe in Jesus, take it to the bank. I had an idea. Johanna, I'm at church. I'll try a bit. That's a different female name, isn't it? That's a different girl, isn't it? That's a different girl. I'm sorry? That's a different girl. That's my niece now. That's your name, right? Okay. story, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, who's going to be next to I'm getting caught here. Yeah. It's never too early to repent. <laughs> You're speaking to me. <laughs> oh Genesis, Genesis 5.22 Enoch walked with God after he had fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. He walked with God for 300 years. You know what a good day for me is? If I walk with God for a day. <clears throat> Sometimes a good day is if I, if, I, if I make it through the first hour without sinning. You know, the first hour of my day without some ugly thought, some wayward thing, some... Somebody put fish in your off. <laughs> 300 years! Look at the possibility. This is before the new birth. This is before the Torah. Before cars, highways, and computers, too. Before car, cars, highways, and computers, thank you very much. Right? But not before murder. No, that's for sure, yeah. Right? Not, right. So, yeah. So are we, are we going to get into Enoch being carried away? Or you are rather impatient tonight. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's only 90 years old. Give the guy a break. Seems like, like you're taking a long time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hey, hey, I mean, he walked for 300 years. I could take five minutes, okay. right? <laughs> can Amos 3.3, 3, can two walk together except they be agreed? Walking with uh, implies agreement. He agreed with God. He walked with God for that's 300 a good, years. That's a good thought. Amen? That's a good thought.
Yeah. All right. So in all the fun we're going to have, Eddie, and yes, I, I, I trust if we don't all fall asleep before 8 o'clock tonight to get into um, Enoch. But here's the thing. If you remember nothing else, aside from the it's never too early to repent, never too early to repent, is this. When we walk with the Lord, we go where He takes us. When we walk with the Lord, we go where He takes us. Sometimes that's the Sanhedrin where all that's waiting for you is a bunch of stones. Sometimes. Yeah, I, I think, it's, looking back on my life, I walked this way and that way and he corrected it. Uh -huh. But it wasn't right straight along with uh -huh. the horn. Yeah. I was getting off of course. I got off of course here. I got off, not that I was yeah. against them or anything, but I was wandering around the dark, falling into ditches sometimes. You know. Yeah. He gets us straight. When we walk with the Lord, we go where He takes us. Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. And it's the simplest formulation of discipleship spoken by the Master. You want to be a Christian? I'm going this way. Follow me. Follow me. When John's disciples came to Him, said, Master, we want to learn from you. Well, come. Come see. Come see how I live, where I live, what I do, what I eat. He didn't say, well, you know, you better read the Gospel of Moses first. <laughs> you know, one thing about what you just said made me think, you know, the disciples were mostly fishermen and they owned boats. Huh? And people that owned boats in that time were, were upper class. In other words, they they had stuff. They had means, so there yeah. Was a lot of pe they had means. There was a lot of people that didn't have, they had people working for them. When they walked and followed Jesus, they still had people that they were hired that were running their boat. Mm -hmm. they didn't, the boat didn't lay there and not do right. anything and rot. They, you know, so they had businesses. Yes. And, well, anyway. Yeah. Hey, it's Bruce. And family, too. And family, too. John 12, 26, the first part. Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. When we walk with God, we go where He takes us. If you're following Jesus, you will be where He is. That's good news, isn't it? The nice part about that is Jesus is right here with us. Boom! <laughs> right? We're right. serving him. But, but you know, I think about what you're saying, and, and I look at my life. There was times when I decided, well, I wanted to move to, uh, wanted to move south. I wanted to. Uh, I was thinking about moving to, to uh, um, what's the city down there? Uh, down in South Carolina, uh -huh. uh, Charleston. And so I did move down there for six months. I left my family up, but it was the wrong place for me to be. While I was there, the Lord spoke to me. He said, if you if you move, I had the house up for sale, and he said, if you, he spoke to me, he says, if you move down here, you'll be in poverty for the rest of your life. Mm. And and so I went back. I went back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, but you, you can get off course. Yeah. I'm not talking about not being with the Lord. You're I, talking I understand. about yeah. But Make a bad decision, got to get you on track. The the nuts and bolts of living. Mm -hmm. Some you know, whatever. Yeah. I'm sorry. Absolutely. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. You know, if you've been challenged with laying hands on the sick and seeing them healed, 
If you're serving Jesus and He says lay hands, guess who already has His hands on them? He does. He does. So why do you? Why would you have a faith problem if if Jesus is already? All you got to do is say it. I'm going to do it. Say it. You know what? It's it's, it's easy. It's easy to pray. You know. We walk it out, but the power is not our power. It's His power. It's His. Amen. You know? So, walking with God. Colossians 2.6 Therefore, as you have received Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So what we're talking about. Enoch walked with God, and he pleased God. It's impossible to please God without faith. As we, as we learn Christ, we walk. We walk in Him, and we are established in the faith. Amen? Galatians 5.25 If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Now we see that those are two different things. See, you could be made alive by the Spirit, get born again, and decide not to walk by the Spirit. So... Once we've been regenerated by the Spirit of God, our allegiance is to follow the Spirit, the one that makes us alive. That's what leads to life. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. For while we were still in this tent, this body, we groaned being burdened. Not that we should be unclothed. Remember I shared with you earlier that you know, being a, a non-corporeal, immaterial spirit is not our destiny. We're going to have a body for eternity. That's how God made you, okay? To have a body. And, and our craving isn't this pagan craving to be released from the mortal flesh and put off this nasty material world and be a spirit forever. No, that's paganism. The, 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 the biblical faith is a resurrected body. A resurrected body. And we're looking to be clothed up that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That God clothes us with an ever-living body. Immortal body. Immortal, right. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. He's, he's made us this way, right? He made us for it. Who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Alive or dead, we want to be pleasing to God. Amen? Amen. Why? Give me the cat's born in the morning. <laughs> Why do we want to be pleasing to God? <laughs> Because He made us. Why wouldn't we want to please God? Right? <laughs> and so now I get to just real basic, human, God-engineered motivational factors. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those who come to God must believe that... He is. And He is a... Rewarder. A rewarder. Of them that diligently, of them that diligently seek Him. God made you in such a way that you are reward response initiated. There is a reward to please Him, just as there's a punishment to be displeasing. 
So there is there is very <laughs> basic. It, it may not be a punishment. It's just a result. It's very <laughs> basic common sense. We were joking. Uh, Helena, was, I forget what the comment was, Helena, where I said that was very Dutch of you, right? You know, they, you lose your reward points, right? <laughs> I had a Dutch boss. He said, you know what we call it, Dutch treat? We sit down at lunch and we say, well, I ate lunch, I paid. You ate lunch. Um, anyhow, <laughs> I love that guy. He was great. Brueggemann was his name. Paul Brueggemann. Why please God? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. He was a testimony of repentance to generations. But what we are, what, well, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. See, it's a good reason to please God, because we're going to be judged, and we're going to be rewarded, paid out for what we've done, both good and bad. This is why it's never too early to repent, but maybe too late. Don't, don't get caught in your sin. Repent. Avoid the sin altogether. It's the best, it's the best plan, right? John 12, 26. Uh, if anyone serves me, he must, he must follow me where I am. There will my servant be also. And we said that's the walking with God part. But the latter part of the verse is the pleasing God part. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. God always shows His pleasure through reward. That He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. There's this, there's this point to it. This, this fake piousness of not expecting anything from God kills faith. It makes you a fatalistic victim to the cosmos. Not the beneficiary of the most loving Father in the universe. Amen. 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 Full faith requires you to acknowledge that God will reward you. And to act otherwise is to cut off your own right hand. It's stupid. Don't do that. Cut off your life. Yeah. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's the please God. Yeah, that's the pleased God part. That's the please God part. To believe on the one who sent pleases God. There, there are scriptures that say that we will receive applause from God. Can you imagine? You show up in heaven and God stands up and starts clapping. You know what happens when God claps? Woo! Whoa, that's a pretty galaxy. There's another point to that. With our faith, it's impossible to please Him, for he that comes to God must believe that He is and is rewarded and diligently seek Him. But you know, you know why? I've often thought about this. You know why it pleases God when you have faith? Because He can bless you then. He can bless you when you have faith. Without without faith, you're wandering around and you're you're you know you know death and life are the power of the tongue. You know if 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 you don't walk with faith, God, God wants to give you something, but He can't. Right. And that's why it pleases Him. Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, you know, it's a different paradigm. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. When we walk with the Lord, we go where He takes us. When we walk with the Lord, we go where He takes us. Amen. 
Back to Sirach 44.16, out of the King James Version. Yes, it's in the King James, just not your Protestant Evangelical King James. <laughs> <laughs> Enoch pleased the Lord and was translated, being an example of repentance to all generations. I want you to see this, because it's important. See, when Enoch began his walk with God, Adam was 687 years old. That's generation one. So we're just going to walk down Adam's generations, right? When Enoch began to walk with the Lord, Adam was 687 years old. Seth was 557 years old. Enosh was 452 years old. Kenan was 362 years old. Mahalael was 292 years old. Jared was 227 years old. Enoch himself was 65. Jude 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, I just read you the seven generations of Adam, those names, prophesied, Enoch was a prophet, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against them. The only verse that we have in canonized scripture about the prophetic ministry of Enoch comes to us from the book of Enoch, which is not in scripture. But because Jude put it in scripture, it's in scripture. Yes. So, how would you characterize Enoch's prophetic ministry? I would believe what I would believe believe that from Jude. The nature of his ministry is the Lord of hosts is coming to execute judgment. Jesus in Nazareth in the synagogue opened the scroll and read about the Lord anointing him to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to open the eyes of the blind, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he said, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears? The rest of that verse is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Enoch was not an acceptable year of the Lord preacher. Enoch was a day of vengeance of our God preacher. He was a witness. He was an example of repentance to generations. And his word to his generations was, the Lord's coming with ten thousands of his holy ones, and he is going to set this cesspool straight. That was Enoch. Does that encourage you? That encourages me. Because <laughs> I'll show you how he carried this out. Or I should say, how he will carry this out. So, when Enoch was translated, when he was taken up by God, Adam had been dead for 57 years. Seth then was 857 years old. Enosh was 752 years old. Kenan was 662 years old. Mahalael was 52 years old. Jared was 527 years old. Methuselah, his son, was 300 years old. Lamech, Methuselah's son, was 113 years old. Noah had not been born yet. So, 
Enoch testified to nine generations. That is significant. He's the seventh from Adam, the spiritually perfect number. He is witnessing to nine generations. That is the signature number for the Holy Spirit. Apply your own applications there. Draw your own conclusions, I should say. Here's the point. A life walk with God, a life walk with God, impacts, it touches generations. It's not just your peers. Praise God. Praise God. A life walk with God will influence and impact generations. God's view is always generational because we die. <laughs> That's the truth. The Lord tarries, we'll all go the way of the earth. So Enoch is probably going to be one of those, one of those people that. Uh, I'm just going to put you up here with the clicker. <laughs> You're just going to be right up here with the clicker. What? You're just going to be right up here with the clicker. I'm sorry. I, I, no, it's okay. I said you're going to be right up here with the clicker. You're like you're like the guy in the movie house saying the butler did it. So I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm messing up your teaching. Is that what no, you're saying? No, 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 no. You know where I'm going. <laughs> I'm sorry, Eddie. No, be sorry. I'm messing with you, Eddie. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't know whether you're messing with me or not. No. <laughs> Just gonna have to bullet trust that what he says he means. You're right on. You're right on it, Ed. You're right on it. No, you said Mahalo was like 52. It's 592. Did I, did I typo it? No, you didn't typo it. You said it wrong. He was oh, 592 years old, not 52 years old. Okay. Just want to make sure in case anybody's listening. Make sure on the, the audio, audio. gets there right. Okay. Genesis 5:24, uh, and, and the reason for this is just the de the, the, the degeneration of mankind. Mankind didn't evolve. We have been devolving since the sin. Genesis 5.24, Hebrew, it, the was not is the Hebrew ayin, and uh, here, here you go, this will, this will really educate you, it educated me. It's a negative sustensive, characters to be used to negate a noun or a noun clause. Want to do a word study? It's only used 788 times, have fun. Alright, so it's characteristically used to negate a noun, a person, place, or thing, or a noun clause. A clause that stands for a person, place, or thing. So uh, it can be used to, your context determines what its meaning is. Uh, it can be used in terms of absence. That God had planted a tree in Eden, but there was not a man to till the ground. Okay? So he wasn't, he was absent. The man wasn't there. Uh, Non-existence. Uh, this is translated in the King James, 1 Samuel 10, 4. You know, Samuel went, not Samuel, Saul went to look for the donkeys. And, and so his report was, they were nowhere. That's Ayin. Or, they were not to be found. That's out of the uh, English Standard Version. They were not to be found. Enoch was not found. Right? That's how we get it in the uh, New Testament. Or, that which has disappeared. You know, uh, 1 Kings 20, verse 40, he was gone. <laughs> he was gone. Okay? This word took is lakash in the Hebrew, to take, receive, take away, grasp, take hold of. Okay? Again, if you want to do a word study, it's only used 966 times in the Old Testament. There's a lot of taking going on. <laughs> but the first couple uses are telling. The first use is Genesis 2.15. Um, and I'll read Genesis 2.7 and then verse 15. Then the Lord... God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. 
And the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The dirt that Adam was made from wasn't dirt in the garden. He was made outside of the garden, and then God took him and put him inside of the garden. Is this speaking, is this, you know, speaking to you? Okay? And then he was taken out of the garden. You've been translated from the kingdom of darkness, wilderness, wildness, chaos, into the kingdom of light, his dear son. Wow. Okay? Alright? That's a taking. The second use of this is another clear taking. Genesis 2.21, the Lord took one of his ribs. I, and I'm just doing this to, to just so you understand that Enoch uh, was taken. He was one place and then he was another. Okay? So, um, this, I, I have taken, this is not taken, I, I forgot to fix this. In the Hebrews 11.4, it's that it was translated. I guess in the, perhaps it's taken in, in the ESV. I get lost sometimes. Metathemi is the Greek word. It's to bring to another place, to transport. And one great example of this is Acts 7, uh, verses 15 through 16, where the bones or the remains of the patriarchs were taken from Egypt and they were buried with Abraham and, Sh and Shechem, right? In, in, uh, in that cave. At Hebron? And where? Abraham's kingdom. We'll go back. Right? So that's the transporting. They're in one country, they get moved to another place. Oh, there it is. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Okay? So that's, the, that's that word, Metathem. Now, there is a great New Testament example of this kind of a thing. Uh, but it doesn't use that word. So it's the same activity, but it uses different vocabulary. Okay? And this is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Lord speaks to Philip and he says, Hey, I want you to go down south from the road of Jerusalem that goes down to Gaza. Okay? And he goes and he sees the Ethiopian who is an ambassador, a representative of his queen, and he's in a chariot. And so Philip has to hotfoot it, right? He gets up there, and while he gets up there, the man's reading from Isaiah. And he asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, well, you know, is he talking about himself or some other man? And so Philip joins the chariot, he introduces him to Jesus, and then the eunuch says, well, here's water. What prevents me from getting baptized? And Philip said, nothing. If you believe, you can be baptized. And so he takes him into the water, and baptizes them, and they come out of the water, and Philip's gone. Philip. That, that must have been a revelation to the, right? to, to the eunuch, right? So there are all kinds of life applications here. Look, God could have just had Philip show up on the road. And yet Philip had to get on the road, not knowing what was on the road, and start hot-footing it down to Gaza and happens to come across this chariot at the right moment. Right? So, you know, there are times where God does things for us supernaturally, and there are times where He just says, hey, look, I gave you a body, why don't you use it? I gave you a brain, why don't you use it? But I want a revelation. Well, why don't you just read the book? 
<laughs> I think sometimes we don't even know it. We're, you know, we're in line with what God is doing, right. and we don't even realize He's doing it. He's doing it. So if you live a life of awareness, if you believe that you're following Jesus, why wouldn't you expect divine appointments every day? Why wouldn't you expect divine interactions every day? Look for them. Seek and ye shall find. Find, right? Acts 8, verse 38. I, I put 38 through 40, but apparently I just put 39 and 40 up here. So Acts 8, 39. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. I just love this. This is, matter of fact, my, my book, Love Everlasting, A Practical Theology of Time, um, was kind of springboarded from this. I thought, how does that happen? How do you do that? How do you, how do you, what was the mechanism of being in, you know, a roadside wadi and, I mean, was he what? I don't know. They come out of the water and he's like, he's looking around and he's like, where am I? Oh, welcome to Azotus, population 249 and five cats. <laughs> you know, I think it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty neat. Yeah. Um, by the way, the Ethiopian, let me just, um, I think that the Ethiopians were the ones, the versions we have of the book of Enoch is because the Ethiopians preserved it. Okay? If I'm remembering my history right. Let's look at this. So, here's Jerusalem. This is this road, this kind of windy road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Okay? So, God tells Philip, go down on this road. I don't know how long he traveled on that road. I don't know. Narratively speaking, it's almost like they, you know, he gets on the road and he, he, he runs into the guy. But yeah, you know, it might have been longer. Don't know. So, let's just say that right outside of the city gates, he happens to walk across this chariot where the guy's reading the book of Isaiah. Well, as the crow flies, Jerusalem to Azotus, Ashdod, you've probably heard that name, same, same town, that's 35 miles. 35 miles. So if they got in the pool somewhere just outside of Jerusalem and Philip comes out, he's 35 miles away. Let's just say they got all the way down to Gaza. And at some, you know, there's a little river here. At some little wadi by Gaza, Philip comes out of the water. Well, Gaza to, to Azotus, that's 25 miles. That's quite the leap. You know, in, in a culture and economy where 25 miles is a day, two days walk, being able to get to your next appointment immediately, smoking hot. You remember when Dr. George Sashri came to our church, this church at your house or uh -huh. the other place, and he sat there and he told us how he was an old man, he'd never, this is a, a man of God from India that, it, that was known as the Billy Graham of India, and he had never worked in a secular job, he had always worked for the Lord since he was eight or nine years old. And he said that he was uh, he was old and he had to go to this uh, seminar or something or something that, in a further city and he didn't have the money he didn't he was poor he didn't have the money to get transportation there so he's walking along this road it was hot he was tired and he was about halfway there and he was griping to the Lord and he said 
you know, Lord, he says, why don't you just let, let me go back to where I am and I'll earn some money. And he says, then I can, and the Lord said, when did I ever not meet your needs? And he was immediately transported from that place to the, to where the seminar was in an instant of time, which was several miles. Yep. Yeah, and you remember that? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, God still does this. I, and, I, and, you know. and, and, you know, God, God does supernatural things, uh, breaks the natural laws when it serves his purposes. He, he's he a supernatural them. God, and when it serves his purposes, he, he supersedes does. them. And he said, when did I ever not meet your needs? And, he, and Dr. George Sachery was there instantly, right as he said that. Yeah. I, I, I can't even remember who gave the testimony. Some had to go on a missions trip or whatever. Or didn't have... Huh? Oh, went into the bathroom and came out in the right city? Yeah. Yeah. He's at an airport in one city. Doesn't have the funds to get on the plane. Goes into the... You know, the Lord tells him to go into the restroom. He goes in the restroom. He comes out and he's in the right airport. He's <laughs> in a different airport. <laughs> you know. Okay? Okay, so... With regard to Enoch, the other, I mean, the, the, the strongest correlative experience we have is the um, quote-unquote rapture of Elijah, 2 Kings 2, verses 1 through 18. And, you know, I encourage you all to read this account. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But verse 9, when they had crossed, you know, they crossed the Jordan because Elijah took his cloak off and smacked the water, you know, and they walked on dry ground. It's the kind of guy Elijah was. He says to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked, the hard th you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, see he's being taken, and it shall be so for you, but if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they, were still, as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So I, I, I want you to cue you into one thing. When you read whirlwind, okay, think pillar of cloud. Think what? Pillar of cloud. Oh, okay. It's the same thing. The whirlwind that Ezekiel saw by the river Kabar, the pillar of cloud, this whirlwind that took up Elisha to heaven, and the cloud that received Jesus when he ascended is the pillar of cloud. It's the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? That's what that is. I got a book on it, but I'm not going to plug that book today. Alright. So <laughs> what became of Enoch and Elisha? What happened to these two? Well, to find out, uh, let's go into Elijah first, because he's the most prominent or most familiar to us. He's got more ink in the Bible related to him. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I read you Enoch 1.9. I read you Jude 14, 15. Did you see any lest there be? Or did you just hear judgments coming out of Enoch? It's coming. Judgments coming. So there are two Elijahs. I don't know if you've ever done this. I know I have, you know. These these 
first century Jews, poor things, they thought there was a prophet coming like Moses, and they thought there was a Messiah coming. And they didn't realize that the prophet and the Messiah were one guy. Ha ha ha, we're, we're on the in crowd. Well, there are two Elijahs. And there are two fulfillments to the Elijah prophecy. I messed up my animation on this. John the Baptist. The prophecy uh, with regard to John the Baptist to his parents was that he would um, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children in the spirit and power of Elijah. Luke 1, 15-17. But then Jesus was asked, why does Scripture say that Elijah must first come? And Jesus said, Elijah has come if you will accept it. If you will accept it, Elijah has come. And then later, that's Matthew uh, 11. I think that's Matthew 11. I might have just done that wrong. That's possibly supposed to be Mark 11, 13 through 14. And Matthew 17, he says, Elijah has already come, but they did not recognize him. They did to him what they wanted to do. Okay? So, yeah, John the Baptist is Elijah, if you'll accept him. But you didn't. So guess what? Elijah's coming. Malachi 4.5 Before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Elijah was there testifying to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Then you've got to know about the two witnesses. Revelation, 3, Revelation 11 and Zechariah 4. So let's go to Zechariah first. Zechariah 4, verses 1 through 3. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said, see, this is, this is what being woke is really about. Hearing from God. Okay, I had to put that out there. All right, he woke me. And he said, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Okay? So this is the, this is, this is the prophetic process. God expects you to understand prophetic language. He embedded prophetic language in the language of creation and symbolism so he can talk the same way through generations. And then he asks us to see. Look and see. What does Zechariah see? He sees a lampstand and two olive trees. Does he know what it means? He has not a single solitary idea. And if he had ideas, he kept it to himself because he's a practice prophet. <laughs> what do you see? His response usually is, what does that mean, Lord? Don't, and God's like, don't you know? I'll tell you what it is. Those seven lamps is the Spirit of God. But I want to show you who the two olive trees are. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? What's that about? <clears throat> now, when David had the architectural plans for the temple and Solomon built it, see, the Ark of the Covenant had two cherubim, but then he built these two massive olive wood cherubim that he put in the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, that overshadowed the ark, which is representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are these two olive trees? You see, it's the same message, but it takes different artistic forms. In the vision, it looked like an olive tree. Not the prettiest of trees, by the way, particularly the old ones, but anyhow, find beauty where you look at it. 
and and then these 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 two olive wood cherubs on either side of the ark in the temple. Okay, what is that? What's that about? And the second time I, I answered, I said to him, you know, I asked him once, and I asked him again, what is that about? You know, he didn't get a vision and write, you know, his own dissertation. I believe this is the, the olive harvest is going to decay. We should ship all the oil next week. A second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? These olive trees are sucking oil from the lamp. They're not giving oil to the lamp. That's a revelation. I just got that. Mm -hmm. That was pretty good, right? Can you say that again? The, the oil is coming into the trees, not, not, not from the trees. Okay? okay? Yeah. Where did the oil in the temple come from? It came from olives, the fruit of the olive tree. But here are these two olive trees living from the anointing of the lampstand. Oh, that lampstand, if you read the book of Zechariah, is the Holy Spirit of God. Yeah. Maintaining the life of these two olive trees. And he said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. I don't know what these are. He says, these are the two anointed ones. That's why I know the oil is going from the lampstand to the tree and not vice versa. They're not two anointers. They're two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. I tell you, if you read the Bible and you read it for what it says, it is the wildest book you'll ever encounter. It'll, it'll beat any fantasy, any thriller, any science fiction. Revelation 11, verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, that's three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth, how long did Elijah shut heaven up? Three and a half years. No rain. These are, these two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. King of Israel sent emissary, a captain with 50 to Elijah. He said, Elijah, man of God, King wants to see you. Elisha says, well, if I'm the man of God, let fire come from heaven and consume you and your 50. Kapow! They die. The king sends 50 more. They're traipsing over, you know, all the burnt brass and bones. King says he wants to see you, man of Carmel. <laughs> well, if I'm the man of God, let fire come out from heaven. Bam! Blows all 50 of them away. Right? <laughs> the third guy comes through. Please guys, come. Hey, don't kill me. Wife, kids. You know, if you would, sir, please, Mr. Prophet, sir. Uh, okay, I'll go with you. I, I, absolutely, this guy had some sense. <laughs> if anyone harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed, doomed to be killed. <laughs> I love the language. And they have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. By the way, I have it on good authority that no rain fell in the days of Enoch. I don't think he prophesied about that. I'm just saying that it didn't rain in the days of Enoch. Because Noah wasn't born yet. Because Noah wasn't born yet. <laughs> and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. 
as often as often as they desire. Note the difference. The accusation of people who think the gifts have stopped, the way they usually approach is, oh, you believe in miracles? Do a miracle. <clears throat> the apostles did miracles. They could do it all the time. No, it's not on demand. It's not how God works. It's not on demand. Yeah, well, you're just avoiding me. It doesn't happen. No miracles happen. I mean, it's, it's a really petty, like an like a, a elementary school argument, but this is how they approach it. Because they believe that's how it worked for the apostles. So they could just, just, they were magical. They could just show up and it happened. Absent of... God's empowerment or revelation or, or anything, right? These Not these cats. These cats come down, it's like, smoke them, okay, boom. Yeah, oh, you like that drink of water? How's, how's that blood taste, huh? You're not going to listen to me? And when they had finished their testimony, remember Enoch's prophecy. The Lord is coming, and He is going to uh, reprove the world for all their ungodly deeds. These two witnesses, they show up in, uh, in the seventh seal of the book of Revelation. The seventh seal uncaps the seven trumpets, and the seventh, seventh trumpet uncaps the seven vials or the seven plagues. So the seventh trumpet is the announcement of the wrath of God. The first three and a half years is this... Uh, you know, people get all, all bent out of shape about the tribulation and the Antichrist. He is, uh, that is just like a preamble. That's just kind of like a hiccup compared to when God judges the earth. So that day of Jacob's trouble, those seven-year period, that first three and a half is man making a muck of everything. Those last seven and a half years is God pouring all his wrath on earth. These guys show up when? Right before. Right before. The great and awesome day of the Lord. That wrathful time of God. They show up and they get killed. And what? They get killed. Oh, yeah. Well, you but know what Enoch... For, they were there for three and a half years, yeah. right? You know what Enoch and Elijah have in common? They were never killed. They haven't died yet. Right. But guess what does happen to them? They die. They die. When they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the people of the tribes of the language of nations will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And they'll give gifts. Yeah, and those... You've read this before. <laughs> and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Until the advent of satellite TV, this was an impossibility of fulfillment. This is like, you know, for, for, you, for you kids to see something at, at a moment's notice is no big deal. There was a time in human history, in my experience, that wasn't possible. That was called the age of music. My experience. Yeah. Yeah. Great. For, for two bodies, how often do people get killed in Jerusalem and the whole world watches it now? All the time. All the time. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Enoch and Elijah held alive in the presence of God by His Holy Spirit for the appointed day. 
to give testimony to the earth that the Lord is coming. Retribution's coming. Evil deeds will be judged. And they come down to earth and they testify for three and a half years. They suffer mortality. They die. And God resurrects them after three and a half days. Another testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are ascended. Another testimony in my belief that all those people that disappeared, yeah, that wasn't an alien invasion. God is on the move. Three, three and a half years and three and a half days. Huh? Mm -hmm. yeah. Hebrews 11.5 By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. When we walk with the Lord, we go where he takes us. Ultimately, always into his presence. Verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Amen? You know, man, we're, we are so blessed because we're going to see some of this stuff, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> Whether we're dead or alive, we're going to see it. I was really excited about that. I hope that blessed you. <laughs> I didn't realize that Elijah and Enoch, because they were the prophets of repentance, uh -huh. that God is keeping them alive yep. to bring them back as the two witnesses, mm -hmm. and then they will die and take it up. Isn't that exciting? That's new. Because you, you always hear people... <laughs> In Israel. Well, you always hear people, oh, the two witnesses must be alive today, and they're born already, and but never <clears throat> have I heard this. You didn't know this? That it's Elijah and Enoch that are the two witnesses? Yeah. You didn't know? I thought I just I just thought there were I just thought there's two witnesses. They are one of the two, right? It's just like dude. That always that always reminds me of the old dire straits too. Who are the two men? Um, the, yeah. the song's well, called I mean, Industrial Disease. The and, and he, in the song, he says, There are two men that say they're Jesus. One of them must be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a great line for a rock and roll writer, right? Yeah. Uh, well, they yeah. insights yeah. all the time. The other, the other interpretation of those two witnesses that, that renowned teachers kind of lean toward and among them, Dr. David Jeremiah and Chuck Missler, are Moses and Elijah. But I, I, Moses, it clearly indicates he was died, he died, he was buried by God, and that there was a, an angelic dispute over his actual remains. So I think that pretty much disqualifies him. Um, and and the, the tenor of Enoch's prophecy of judgment coming is just so... You know, we think we live in wicked times now. I mean, Enoch's grandson got on a boat and God drowned the world. We haven't seen wickedness like that. Amen. All right.